Well, good morning. So good to see you here today. So good to have you with us. I hope your summer's going well. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. What a great truth in those songs. I almost feel like I don't need to preach. There's so much in there and so much to learn, but don't worry, I'm going to preach anyways. You can't get out that quickly or that easily. If you've been tracking with us over the summer months so far, you know we've been working through a series on the book of Mark, uh, specifically uh, looking at the gospel for stressful times. Um, the words of Mark to the church as they went through difficult times, as they were maybe doubting a little bit of, was Jesus really who they thought he was? Was he as powerful as, he, as they remembered him to be? And Mark is reminding them of who Jesus is and that they can trust him, even though the culture around them is against God. Does that sound familiar? Last week, Pastor Kelvin shared with you from Mark chapter 4. And this week, we are looking at Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 4, you remember if you weren't here with us. And by the way, if you ever miss one of our sermons, you know you can uh, listen to them online. Go to our website. They're all there for you. You can get caught up if you miss one in the series. In Mark chapter 4, we dealt with Jesus calming the storm. You know that famous Sunday school story? Many of you have heard it before. Jesus showing his power over the elements of nature on the Sea of Galilee. Today we're in Mark chapter 5. And as you're turning there, we'll be in verse 1 through verse 20. So Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. As you're learning, as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought or you believed and you, or you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you needed help. There was no way you were getting out of this on your own. There was, you did not have the resources, you didn't have the smarts, you didn't have the ability or the strength to fix the situation you were in. I remember, this is a story from a long time ago, I was a young child, I grew up in Kenya, my parents were missionaries there, in case you didn't know, and you can ver this is a true story. You can verify it. My dad's sitting at the back there. In fact, you've probably heard it from him before. If you haven't heard it, I'll tell it to you. It might sound a little different coming from me because I think I was, I don't know how old I was at that time. I was maybe 10 or I was young anyways. We're out, I was on a trip with my dad and we were heading up. We went up north in northern Kenya. Northern Kenya is mostly desert, if you don't know, but it is. And we were up there with a group of other missionaries and they were, I'm not even sure what they were doing. My, my dad was probably building something because that's what he did a lot of. And anyways, we were at this mission station and a, and a group of people from near in that area came to us and said, can you help us? We have a problem. Now this is probably a unique problem for most of you. Their problem was they had a rhinoceros stuck in their well. Now, now, you may be thinking, picturing, you know, the little brick well with a little roof over it and the little hand crank with the bucket. No, that's not what wells look like in the desert. In the desert, a well is a fairly large hole, and it's big at the top, and it narrows as it goes down, and once they hit water, then they can climb down. Usually there's rocks and different steps that they cut into the side of the well, as I remember, and you can climb down in there with your bucket or your your tin can or whatever you have access to, you fill it with water and lift it up out of the well. Anyway, so it's a large hole and, and this rhinoceros had gotten in there and he couldn't get out. 
and they couldn't get him out. And in fact, he'd been in there a while. In fact, the lions had come and attacked him in the well and they'd scratched him up and he was, he was a little bit bloody and he wasn't doing well at all. They weren't even sure if the rhinoceros was still alive or not. And here is their concern, I believe. If that lion, well, first of all, they, they couldn't get this rhinoceros out so they couldn't get the water that they needed. But also if that rhinoceros died in that well, it would pollute the water and that well would be useless to them, and they needed water. They're in the desert. So they come to my dad and these other missionaries, and they say, we need your help. So my dad, as I remember, loads us up in, the tr in his truck, and there's some chains and different things, and we drive off, and sure enough, there's a rhinoceros stuck in the well. Here's the hard-to-believe part of the story. So it's true. I, I remember I watched it from the back of my dad's truck, the safety of the back of my dad's truck. My dad climbed down into the well with a chain and a stick and laid on the back of the rhino in the well and fed the chain under the belly of the rhino and then hooked it up and they attached that chain to the truck and they pulled the rhino out of the well. Now we were, they were a little nervous. They, were, they weren't sure how, how mad that rhino might be and now it's chained to your truck. Um, <laughs> But they, so there was, one missionary had a rifle and, and the other, all the tribesmen had their spears and they were all ready, but, but that rhino was, was very, very badly injured and he wasn't going anywhere. And they, uh, they had to put him out of his misery and they took the horns and stuff to the game warden so he wouldn't be accused of poaching or anything. But it's a, it's a true story. My dad has the tail of that rhino at home. It's the only thing we kept, I think. But sometimes we need help. These people were lost. They were desperate. They needed this rhino out of their well, and they needed someone else to help them, someone with more, well, someone with a truck and some chains. They didn't have a truck and chains. You ever found yourself in a situation, maybe not a rhino, but I think if you think about it, we face those situations every day, and we just think they're part of normal life. Right? We go to lawyers because we need help navigating the legal system. I don't know anything about law, but if I need to do something that's legal in nature, I, I get a lawyer to help me. If, I, if I'm not feeling well, I'm not sure what's, what's that pain right there. I go see my doctor because they know what's happening in my body better than I do. Sometimes it's as simple as we get a bunch of friends together and feed them pizza so they'll help us move. But we, but we need help because I, I can't move that entire house by myself. It's a lot of furniture and I got a lot of young friends that can help me. We often need help, don't we? Because situations and circumstances are out of our control. Sometimes they're simple things, sometimes they're difficult, but we're out of our league. And sometimes we just need someone to pull a rhinoceros out of our well. Well, our text today is about someone who didn't just need help. He needed deliverance. He needed the most amazing deliverance you could ever imagine. Let's look at it together. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. And it says this. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, 
but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for what you teach us through it. And I pray right now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us the truth of your word today. That we would understand and know you better from your your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is quite a story, isn't it? It's a very detailed story. We don't often get that much detail from the gospel, but here there's a lot of details and they're important. It's important to remember too what just happened in Mark 4. I mentioned earlier what Pastor Kelvin preached on, right? Remember the calming of the sea? Jesus has illustrated and and demonstrated his power over nature. And now he's illustrating and demonstrating his power over the spiritual realm as well. So now they finish their journey because he calmed the sea and they finish their journey across the Sea of Galilee. And now they're in what is largely Gentile territory, the region of the Gerasenes. Now, there's a little bit of controversy about this passage, so I just want to clear that up because I don't, I don't think there really is a controversy, but I'll, I'll, I'll show you what I mean. This story is also told in the Gospel of Matthew and it's also told in the Gospel of Luke. And there are some differences in the telling of the story, just like there's probably some differences in the way I told the story about the rhino and the way my dad might tell it. But that doesn't mean the story isn't true. And I'm, I just want to show and explain this to you in case this ever comes up. Matthew, for, in, for example, says that this happened in the area or the region of the Gadarenes. And Mark and Luke say the Gerasenes. Now, Gadarenes are, in the, are people from Gadara. And G- Gerasenes are the people, people from Gerasa. 
Right? I have a map here. And see if I can help you understand this. So right here is the Sea of Galilee. Right? And they've, so they've traveled across the Sea of Galilee. Now here's the problem. This is why some people say, well, this can't be a true story because Gadara is way down here and Gerasa is way down here. Neither of those are by the Sea of Galilee. How could this have happened there? Because how did the pigs run into the sea? How did Jesus get out of the boat and the man was right there? Well, it's not really an issue because um, where scholars believe they probably was were in this, this town here of Cursa or called Gersa as well. And you can see it's right there on the coast, on the Sea of Galilee. And if you were to go there today, you'd see there's a, sharp, there's a steep slope that heads down, down into the water so the pigs could run down and into the water. And also nearby are cavern tombs, which also align with the story. And the, 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 the important thing to note here is that Mark and Matthew and Luke all say, not that they were in Gadara or in Gerasa, they say they were in the region of the people of Gadara and Gerasa. You see, the people of Gadara and Gerasa had settled in that town of Cursa or Gersa. And they were there, and so they were in the region of those people. Does that make sense? All right, now, you might be, you might be wondering, though, why didn't Mark just say they were in Gersa? Well, I imagine it's a pretty small town. And depending on, you know, when you're talking to people, sometimes... You think, hey, if I say I'm from Oshawa, they might not know where that is. So you say, well, I'm from Toronto. Like, I was camping. I was on vacation with my family a couple weeks ago, and we meet people camping. We were in Sandbanks Provincial Park, a couple of hours from here. But people come from all over the place to camp there, and we meet people all the time. And one of the most common questions is, of course, where are you from? And if I'm talking to someone who's there, who said they're from Montreal, I don't tell them I'm from Oshawa, because they probably don't know where Oshawa is. I, they say, where are you from? I say, oh, just outside of Toronto. And they go, oh, okay. But then I met a guy who said he was from Toronto. And I said, oh, that's, that's really neat. I used to work in Toronto. Where in Toronto are you from? He goes, well, actually, I live in Scarborough, like Warden and Eglinton area. Like, was he lying to me when he said he was from Toronto? No. He was just talking in a way that he thought I would understand. It would be the same as if I was vacationing in Vancouver and someone asked where I was from, I'd probably say, well, I'm from Ontario. That's true. And if I was vac vacationing in Tanzania, I'd probably say I'm from Canada. I wouldn't say I'm from Oshawa. And if one of you today asked me, where, where do you live? I'd say, well, you know, Grandview and Taunton area, up just south of the cinemas, because it's a different audience. So each of the gospel writers referred to the people of the area by the term they believed they would most relate to and they would understand. So there's no controversy about where this happened. It actually happened right there on the coast of Galilee. The second difference you'll notice if you look at both of all the different accounts is Mark and Luke say there was a demon-possessed man and Matthew says there were two. So again, people say, well, hold on a sec. Was there one or was there two? Some say that, I mean, there's some theories that say Matthew liked to exaggerate for effect or that he liked to refer to things in pairs. There's something called coupling. I don't know, it's a poetic device. But I don't think that's true at all. You see, the reality is that Matthew was an eyewitness to this account. He was a disciple. He was there. He saw it happen. Okay? Luke and Mark, however, were not eyewitnesses. 
right? Mark got his information from Peter, who was an eyewitness. And so by the time Peter told him the story and then Mark told his story, I think, I believe there were two, at least two. And, but one of them was more memorable, and that's who got Mark's attention, and that's who he mentions. It's like, okay, think about my vacation again. I was on my walk at Sandbanks. I was walking up by the river by myself, and I looked down into the river, and there was this, it was really cool, this big fish. But I'm not kidding. This isn't a fish story, because I didn't catch it. Uh, but there was a fish, it was about this long, it was really slender, and it was kind of a gray-silver color, and it had this long snout on it, kind of, and I'm like, I don't know what that is. That is the weirdest fish I've ever seen, but you could see it because I was looking down from the bridge into the river, and there was a fisherman on the shore, and he says to me, he says, that's a gar. I'm like, I've never heard of a gar, what's a gar? I looked it up later, it's a gar pike, there's several different species, and sure, sure enough, it was a gar. Now, I just told you that story. How many people were fishing on the river? Well, I only mentioned one, but there was lots of other people fishing on the river. I just didn't mention them. There was, in fact, the, the guy who told me about the gar, his whole family was there. His wife was there. His kids were there. They had a canoe. Uh, they, they got in the canoe later and paddled up. I didn't tell you those details because it didn't, it wasn't part of the story. So there could be, Matthew and Luke don't say, sorry, Mark and Luke don't say there was only one. They just say there was a demon-possessed man. That doesn't mean there couldn't be two. So again, I don't think there's any controversy there. It's just a matter of how they tell the story. Now, why is this important? Why have I spent all this time explaining that this actually happened? Because it's important that you know this is not a parable or an illustration. This, this is an actual event in history. And because it actually happened... What we learn from it, we know is actually true. It's not a myth or a legend. Because there are some important truths we need to learn from this text. And I don't want you to brush them off as, oh, well, that didn't really happen. That was just a story that Mark told or made up. It's actually happened. It's a part of history. So what do we learn from this? Because it's more than just an interesting story about Jesus and a man possessed by demons and some pigs. First of all, the first thing we learn is that demons are real. Demons actually exist. They existed then and they exist now. I say that because in our Western world, in the world that we live in, we tend to relegate demons and Satan and demonic forces to the area of fiction, don't we? I mean, they're, they're a nice topic for a scary movie, or a TV series that's going to keep you up at night if you watch it. Or sometimes they make comedies out of stories about demons and, de and the devil. But we don't tend to think of it as something that is real and part of actual life. And here's the challenge. If we discount the existence of demons, we do it at our own peril. It's very dangerous. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and now continually work evil in the world. Right? Satan and the angels that rebelled against God were thrown out of heaven and they now exist as Satan and demons. And their, their sole purpose 
is to work evil in the world and work against God. The Bible is very clear about Satan and demons. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. I'll just read it for you. You don't have to turn there. Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Demons really exist. And we should not take that lightly. Not only do they exist, the second thing we learn is they exist to torment. Okay? This demon, if you look at the text, was not there to help this guy have a good time. Right? Look at verse 5. Back in Mark chapter 5. Verse 5 says, Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. That doesn't sound like much fun, does it? I don't know how this man came to be demon-possessed. But I imagine it might have seemed seemed attractive at the time. Maybe they're going to give him power. But just like in our lives, it might, sin might seem attractive at the time, but ultimately it will torment and destroy you. Demons don't exist to give you all the good things in life that God doesn't want you to have. Demons exist to torment you. So they exist, they exist to torment. And the third thing you need to know is that demons are very powerful. More powerful than we are. This is again illustrated in our text. Look at verse 3. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Have you ever broken a chain with your hands? Like a proper, strong chain meant for binding you. It's beyond the strength of a normal human being. And it says here, no one could control him. No one could contain him. None of the other people in the area were strong enough to subdue the demons within this man. That was the power of these demons. Stronger than man. And we fool ourselves when we think we can defeat the devil or His angels in our human power. Don't make this mistake of thinking you can handle it. Don't make the mistake of, of dabbling in things that, that are associated with evil spirits. I'm thinking of even simple things like horoscopes and tarot cards and fortune telling. and You know what I'm talking about. We look at those sometimes as, oh, that's just entertainment. I just read those for fun. When we dabble in things that are associated with evil spirits and with demons, we do it at our own peril because they are strong and they are stronger than we are. You do not want to open yourself up to them. If you mess around with them, you will pay the price. Satan is evil angels are more powerful than you are and they're watching you. They don't know what you're thinking. They're not all-knowing like God is, but they're watching you and watching for an opportunity to make you stumble. And as if it wasn't enough that this man had a demon, he had a legion of demons. Remember, he says, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. This wasn't just one powerful demon. This was 
a large group of demons. A legion in the Roman army was 6,000 men. And we know from the story that the demons were cast into about 2,000 pigs. So that's, I'm, I'm guessing there were at least 2,000 demons, maybe more, maybe more than one went into each pig. But, I mean, that's more than double the number of people in this room right here today. If, if there was 2,000 demons. That is a very mighty and powerful spiritual force. Brings us to our last and most important truth that we learn from this text. This is one, the one I want to spend the most time on. Jesus is more powerful than even the strongest or even the most numerous of spiritual forces. Jesus is more powerful. And it's throughout the text. You'll see it through there. Verse 6, When the man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, Why do you, What do you want from me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. Look at the actions of this man. They feared Jesus and His authority. In spite of their number, in spite of their power, they knew who Jesus was and they feared Him. They ran to Him. Why did they run? If they, if they were afraid of Jesus, why didn't they run away? That's what I'd do. They ran to Him because they had no choice. Remember, demons exist to oppose God. Even when they know they can't win, they're going to oppose God at every turn. So this man ran to Jesus under the influence of these demons to challenge God, to challenge Jesus, the Son of God. But even as he comes, notice he falls at his feet because he can't help but be subject to Jesus, the Son of God. Now he does try and exert power over Jesus. Right? He uses Jesus' full name and title. That was a common belief back then that if you, if you use someone's full name and title, it gave you power over them because it illustrated that you knew who they were. It's like, it's like saying, hey, I've got your number. I know who you are. But they also acknowledged before everyone who Jesus was and His identity. Ironically, they seek mercy. Demons, this is, this is almost funny, but demons are seeking mercy and they invoke the name of God to try and get it. He says, he says, in God's name, don't torment us. Even demons knew they need to ask in God's name to get some sort of mercy from God. And they ask Jesus not to, to torture them or torment them or punish them. It's a possible reference to the eternal punishment that's designed for the devil and his angels. Maybe they feared Jesus was going to send them into the lake of fire before their time. We're not sure, but they feared Jesus. Look at verse 10. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area, pleading for mercy from Jesus, subject, knowing that they are defeated already. They have to obey God and pleading for mercy. They were, they'd been active in that area, I imagine, for a long time, and they didn't want to leave. They were enjoying success and they wanted to stay. So they asked to go into a herd of pigs. Seems like a strange request to me, but they did. And Jesus gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out. This is verse 13. 
and went into the pigs, the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. There's another illustration of Jesus' power. They needed Jesus' power, Jesus' permission even just to enter into a pig. That's how great the authority and power of Jesus is over these demons. And in the end, Jesus wasn't really showing them any mercy, was he? Because the pigs all drowned and the demons were without a host anyways. So why did Jesus allow them to go into the pigs? What was the point of that? I've always wondered about that because I thought it was kind of mean to the pigs. Kind of mean to the people that own the pigs. I mean, that was 2,000 pigs. I don't know what they would be worth, but worth a lot. Not to a Jew, but the Gentiles like pigs. So why did Jesus do that? I believe it was to further illustrate the power of these demons. Right? To accentuate the immensity of the evil dwelling within him. They didn't just claim to be a legion. When they entered into that herd of pigs, they demonstrated that there was at least 2,000 of them. So it's an illustration of the immense power of those demons, but also, and more importantly, it, it's an illustration of the immense power of Jesus, that he was able to overcome this large group of demons. And then we see that the man was delivered. He was fully delivered. It wasn't just partially. The demons didn't sleep for a while and then come back. Look at verse 15. It says, When the people, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. He's not running around naked in the tombs anymore, crying out and cutting himself. He's sitting clothed at peace with Jesus, no longer controlled. But look at the people's response. This is another indication of Jesus' power. The people were afraid. In fact, they, they plead with Jesus to leave. They say, we, we, don't, we don't want you around here. They're, they're afraid of him. Does that sound familiar? Those of you that were last week, do you remember last week? What was the disciples' response when Jesus calmed the storm? They were terrified. They were terrified to be in the presence of such power. The power of Jesus was so great, the people were afraid. It's, it's frightening to be in the presence of power, isn't it? And in this, in this case, I mean, if, if someone super powerful and important walked into the room right now, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of someone. Um, Maybe Donald Trump. <laughs> well, regardless of what you think about him, he, he is a powerful man, and he would have his security team with him, and there'd be people everywhere, and, and I think everyone would be just a little bit on edge and a little bit nervous. And, and that's, that's nothing compared to the power of Jesus. The power of God, the holiness of God, should give us a holy fear of him. I know... I know God is love. I know God loves us and we're adopted into his family and we're his children and, and that's all really well and good. And it's true. But he's also the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe. And we should have a healthy fear of God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
So these people in the story, they feared the power of God. We should fear the power of God more than we fear man. Jesus' complete power over the spiritual realm strikes fear into the hearts of the people. Now some have suggested they were really just afraid that he was going to kill more pigs and and destroy their economy and and they were going to suffer more financial loss. I think it was much more than that. I would suggest they were more comfortable living with demons in the presence of demons than they were comfortable living in the presence of God. And I think that's the case for many people today. I think more people are more com- so many people are more comfortable living with their own sin and their own rebellion against God than recognizing and acknowledging Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I mean, they're, maybe they're afraid of the cost, maybe, but I think it's more likely they've been deceived into believing they're doing okay. They're comfortable. Don't, don't, don't rock the boat. Everything's fine. I, I'm doing okay. It's very easy to be more comfortable with sin than it is to be in the presence of a holy God. So we learn lots from this today. Demons are real. Demons exist to torment They're not the good guys. Demons are very powerful. But Jesus is more powerful. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is all-powerful. There's none like him. So interesting information and a great story and lots to learn about Jesus, but how do we respond today? How do you respond to this today? I think you have two options. Well, I know you have two options because everyone in this room... Everyone listening online, everyone who hears this sermon is in one of two states. Either God has already saved you or God has not yet saved you. So the only two options. Either you're saved or you're not saved by Jesus. If God has not yet saved you, you need to respond to His offer of salvation and acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You see, without Jesus, you are no better off than the man possessed by demons. I'm not saying people without God are all possessed. That's not what I'm saying at all. But you are, if you're not saved, if you're not living with Jesus, you are living under the power and influence of darkness, of Satan and his demons. You're living according to their rules according to their ways, in total rebellion to God. And you need to respond today. Don't put it off. You need to respond to the saving grace of God offered through Jesus Christ. You see, only He can save you. You are not strong enough. You are, not po- you are powerless. You are not powerful enough to save yourself. Just like this man possessed by demons. He couldn't save himself. But also, you notice, no one else could save him. If you don't know Jesus today, your parents can't save you. Your friends can't save you. Your your Christian friend at work can't save you. Only Jesus has the power to save you. 
Only Jesus is more powerful than the forces of darkness. Only Jesus paid the price on the cross for your sins. And only He can save you. So respond to Him today if that's where you're at today. I implore you, I beg you, listen to Jesus, respond to His call on your life. And for the rest of you, if God has already saved you, remember who you are. You are His child. Remember what He has saved you from and be thankful. Now just to be clear, if God has saved you, you cannot be possessed by a demon or even a legion of demons. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. There is no room for demonic forces to possess you and control you. If you don't believe me, read Romans chapter 8. Now, don't get me wrong. Demons will try. They will try to influence you. They will tempt you. They will create mischief in your life and in your, in your, your circumstances. But they cannot possess you. You are God's child. Jesus has saved you from the powers of darkness. You now live in the light. Be thankful for that today. And I would invite you to respond by telling your story. The man in our text today wanted to stay with Jesus. Right? To go with him back to Galilee. Maybe he, he was looking for the safety and security that Jesus was offering. He was afraid the demons would come back once Jesus left. Or maybe it was just out of loyalty and gratitude. He wanted to be a follower of Jesus. But look at verse 19 and 20. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell him the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. You need to respond in the same way. You need to go home. You need to tell your family what God has done for you if they don't know already. You need to go to your friends and your neighbors, the people God has put in your life, your co-workers. And you need to tell them what Jesus has done for you. How He had mercy on you and how He rescued you and delivered you. Do you believe that Jesus has delivered you? See, I, I think sometimes we think, well, yeah, I know Jesus saved me, but... I was doing pretty good already. It's not like I was demon-possessed. I was doing okay. But yeah, I know I need Jesus, and yeah, Jesus saved me. I'm thankful to be part of God's family, but no. Before Jesus, you were totally depraved. There was nothing good in you, and God saved you from that. That is so incredibly amazing, you should be shouting it from the rooftops. I should be shouting it from the rooftops. But so often we're silent. So I invite you, as you leave this place today, respond to the work of God, the work of Jesus in your life, by telling your story. Tell everyone. You don't have to have all the theology and all that stuff's great. You just need to tell your story. Tell people what Jesus did for you. That's all it takes. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for delivering us from the forces of darkness. Thank you for your son Jesus who has all power over every evil force and that we can rely on him 
as we resist the devil in our daily lives. Lord, I pray that if there are people here today that you have not yet saved, that they would respond to your offer of salvation today, Lord, and you would do a mighty work in them and deliver them today and bring them into your family. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would embolden us to tell our story, to share what Jesus has done for us with everyone we know and everyone we meet. By your power, by the work of your Holy Spirit in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has power over the natural elements of this world. Jesus has power over the spiritual elements of this world. And that power is available to us. Romans 5, verse 6 says, You see, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God, in verse 8, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The same Jesus who had power over everything died for our sins. We were powerless. We are powerless without Jesus. But Jesus is all-powerful. Respond to Him today. Respond to His offer of salvation. Submit to His Lordship in your life and tell everyone you know what Jesus has done for you. There'll be pastors here at the front if you want to talk to someone. If some, something I've said doesn't make sense, please come talk to me. Talk to one of the other pastors. We'd love to answer your questions. I trust you'll have a great day and a great summer. Take care.